welcome to the Mr. TV Podcast. On today's episode, we're talking with G. Bodin, who played Malcolm Frink on Superhuman Samurai Cyber Squad. We talk about how he almost lost the part, the rampant fandom, and his Native American identity. So sit back and enjoy the show. G, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So I was wondering if you can sort of take me back in time a little bit. So let's go back to around 1994. Uh, you're about, what, 25, 26 years old? Uh, what were you up to at that time? Well, it was interesting because um, I had uh, I'd just been I mean, auditioning a lot. And uh, I had made a, a proclamation that by my 25th birthday, I would have my own series. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, so I had signed with a new manager and a new agent at the same time with the agent that I met with. She sent me on three auditions and she said, if you get a call back or get good feedback on one of them, uh, we'll sign you. And I ended up booking, um, I think, two out of the three auditions. OK. And Cyber Squad was one of them. The evil Kilo Khan lives inside computer circuits. With the help of Malcolm Frink, he creates megavirus monsters to attack electronic systems. Yeah, I mean, maybe you can sort of take me back to that audition process, but what was that like, auditioning for the part of Malcolm Frink on the show? The character description is that they wanted a a Tim Curry type right. to play Malcolm Frink, which, which I assumed that they wanted to have this kind of faux British accent. And so um, in, in the process of doing it, I actually was doing an impression of my, uh, my teacher at the time, who, who's, uh-huh. who's, his name was Bennis Martin. And he, he used to speak like this, darling. And, and so I kind of did a twist on Tim Curry and t- his name was Bennis. And he said, Bennis Martin. And he always speak, spoke marvelously. And, and so um, I, I kind of based it on him and Tim Curry at the same time. You know, so a little bit uh, amped up fabulousness, but, uh, but you know, made it uh, correct for television because it couldn't be too over the top because it would sound even more ridiculous than he did. And in the beginning, I actually played the accent more muted because I, I read the scripts and I felt, felt that as he became more and more invested or logically, the more and more invested he became with Kilocon, the more that he would kind of morph into this alienable kind of person, you know? And I even wore a, a, a ring uh, after the second episode that kind of showed that I was married to to this concept of Kilopon. I hadn't noticed that, actually. The ring? Yeah, if you look, there's a ring. Uh, okay. I think it appears in the second episode because there was a big discussion. There was a lot of discussions about, like, they wouldn't let me use G. They didn't want me to wear an earring. They wanted me to cut my hair and I refused. Well, uh, we compromised on, mm-hmm. so um, I, I said, I'm the bad guy. Why would I cut my hair short and look like everyone else? And if the good guy has long hair, I should have long hair as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's one thing definitely about Malcolm Frink's character. And it, it comes from, you know, how you look is, you know, Malcolm Frink has a look. He's got the slick back hair. He does have, you know, an earring at one point later in the series. He always wears black. Um, I mean, how much of that character's look was inspired by what you were wearing at the time? Was that your kind of style or was that something that, you know, the character determined? Um well, it's interesting because if I think about uh, like my uh, as an actor, so I 
I mean, you know, uh, I'm, I'm Native American. Mm -hmm. And at that time, uh, when I started out, even when I was in the school, the arts that I went to, I was told specifically that I would never work as an actor because I looked different. And this was back in 1985, 1986. Mm -hmm. I graduated in 87, 88. And, um, but I also knew I looked very young for my age. So even as a teenager, I looked 10 years younger. Well, not 10, but, you know, like a, when I was, you know, 15, I looked like I was 10. And when I had a decision to make of whether I was going to go to university or go on to New York, I, I figured I had a shelf life to try and make it playing younger roles. But New York was different. When I moved to New York, I learned that I was not uh, a freak or I was not ugly, but that I was, a, but the word they used back then was exotic. Right. You know, and so, and then I remember the first casting that I did in New York where I had convinced, I said, they said, what's your type? And I said, oh, I'm a geek. I'm a nerd. I'm like a throwaway person. You know, I'm that, you know, like the Goonies, one of the Goonies characters. And then they sent me on a casting uh, for this. And there literally were like guys with taped glasses, red hair, nerd, real, real authentic nerds. And then the casting director said, oh, you're too pretty. For this, we have another uh, role that might be interesting for you. And then I got cast uh, playing at some short film that they were doing. And then I got uh, auditioned for a soap opera that was in, in LA. And so then that's kind of the progression of how I was trying to figure out where I fit. And then when I got to Los Angeles, the first agent that was a, uh, you know, East Coast, West Coast agencies sometimes have like these partnerships. And then the woman I uh, met with, um, whose name I probably am blocking on purpose, but she said, oh, I, she goes, I see hardcore Cholo. How about you? Uh, okay. and, and so she said, go out, get a suntan. I, got, I, I burn, just I favor my father's side more. And I got really bad sun poisoning and did the photo shoot. And, uh, and, and I was going on these auditions and I do have family members in California that my cousins uh, were in gangs, so I would go on these parties just to kind of, mm -hmm. and I was just like, no. And I said, I, I, so I fired them, and then that's that started the process of getting the agency ultimately that I ended up with uh, that just said, okay, well, you're a minority, so don't go out in the sun. Make sure you uh, wear long sleeves, and we're going to go with your last name and say you're French-Canadian, and that's the story you're sticking with. Don't bring up your ethnicity. Don't bring up your, your background. That's that's so constraining to sort of think about like you, you can you can you can be yourself but you can't get a tan you can't talk no. about your background well and and i think that uh that's kind of when i was getting towards taking a break uh from acting there was also mm -hmm. that i and like what i'm doing now i was also interested in like producing and developing things and i was working with other filmmakers and we were doing short films and they also weren't too keen on that. They, they like to make money. And, the, and so if you're making money for them. So I did a lot of things like commercials and things that wouldn't necessarily track now, you know, uh, pilots that never make it to air, you know. And uh, so, you know, there's a, a, a specialty store in, in L.A. called Gelson's. And then there's, a, you know, then there's a shopping mall. So the agent said to me, she goes, do you want to be a Gelson's or do you want to be a Beverly Center, which is the shopping mall? She said, we need you to be a Gelson's and we need you to just stick to your lane and act. 
And, uh, but of course I was still doing stuff and making theater and, and what have you. And ultimately uh, I just also didn't like Los Angeles so much at the time. I, I never liked LA because I felt very disconnected uh, to truth and reality. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I went back to New York actually uh, when I took a break. Okay. Um, one thing is I had sent you an uh, interview that you had done with a Virginian pilot uh, a long time ago. And, uh, I don't think that's the whole, I don't even think that's the whole um, interview. I, it, it's a bit interesting. It seems like it kind of snippets, at least of a conversation yeah. that you had had. Because I got into um, my mom's, my mom, uh, they did the interview in, in uh, her, one of her furniture stores. And of course, she, uh, she was like uh, so doing some self-promotion for herself <laughs> uh, shamelessly. But, you know, once a hustler, always a hustler. Um, one thing that you mentioned in the interview, though, about the sort of acting scene that you're in is that while you were on the show playing Malcolm, um, Superhuman Samurai Cyber Squad, you were still mm-hmm. auditioning for other shows, too. Like you're going on your yeah. lunch breaks to audition. Like how competitive exactly. were things back then? I, well, I mean, at the time that you're doing, I mean, I, I, I was uh, I would say like when I first started acting, you know, I would do you would do everything. I was in. I, I don't know if you're, you're too young to remember this, but there was these uh, these this series called Hard Copy. The bombshell that's rocking Hollywood. Roseanne and Tom breaking up. Where they would do enactments of people getting uh, killed or crimes. And I, I did, a, I did I think, a couple of those. There was, you know, you would do all these things, music videos. I, I did run DMC videos. And you just <laughs> did everything, you know. Right. And you had to really hustle. And at that time, looking back, I'm, this was a very fortunate um, time because is something as simple as setting out your headshots massively to agents yep. and they like your look, they call you in. It's a numbers game. They take on a lot of clients. They throw the, the spaghetti on the wall. They say, and if the spaghetti sticks, then they keep you. And if it doesn't, then you're let go pretty unceremoniously. They're just like, okay, next. And I was, I consider myself very lucky that I never had problems getting an agent. Um, and even when I, before I auditioned for Malcolm, um, we, we, we dumped all my uh, tape and I did a piece at the, uh, the improv and I created a monologue of multiple characters and was able to go and even audition for managers and agents at that time just with a monologue. And I don't think you can do that today. Just go in cold and, and play five different characters in five minutes. Um, so I, I would say that the it was competitive and um and especially when you move from one where you're just doing everything then it's you and like five types there's you know the question what is it the exotic uh questionable as um uh, ethnicity then there's a blonde there's a guy with dark hair but white clearly there's a redhead and there's a black guy right okay so there's these sort of archetypes that existed back then Exactly. And then, you know, and then if they didn't go with you, they were like, oh, they went, they didn't go non-traditional. They went more traditional casting, which meant they, they picked one of the two white guys. Mm, okay. But yeah, I was, and actually uh, uh, just one, one uh, funny thing is that by the time we were done with Cyber Squad, I was doing uh, ADR pickup work with Cyber Squad. I was shooting a horror film at the same time as I was doing a play downtown in, in Los Angeles. So I was, 
very similar to what I did today, which is pull, pulling all nighters and sleeping two hours in the, you know, wherever I could, just because you wanted to stay working. Hmm. Um. I mean, going to Malcolm's character and and your time on the show, you know, you, you mentioned if this you know spaghetti stuck to the wall, uh, you kind mm -hmm. of got kept, and you were kept there for I think fifty three episodes or something like that. Um. I was I was not in one. There's one episode where I didn't have a big role. Um, and the story basically is that all the, um, I was shooting a movie uh, that I booked at the same time and there was a crossover of the week. So I wasn't in town to sign my contract, but my agent and lawyer didn't want me to sign the contract because Disney had a clause in there that would uh, give them permission and rights to our names for oh. I think five years afterwards. Because Disney was the parent company of Deke at that time. And the other one is they didn't want to give us video rights. What does that mean? Uh, like when they sold it, they knew they were going to go to music, to go to video right away with the VHS. And we were being paid, uh, believe it or not, only three, 350 bucks an episode. Even in 1990s money, that's not very much. There wasn't nothing because Disney or Deke was able to say they were doing a um, an experimental live action, um, uh, try because okay. they had never done live action before. So they didn't want to put the budget, but the truth is that, that the budget really went towards Tim Curry and Matthew Lawrence. So then the other actors, uh, were all what they called favored nations. So whatever contract was signed, everyone had to sign it. And so because I refused or I was instructed not to sign the contract, um, I was escorted off set told to leave because my, right. my agents were being difficult and they tried to really badmouth me. Um, and then the next morning, my lawyer calls and said, okay, they're going to be calling you. You turn off your, all your phones, um, go for a run, do something. And then at one o'clock to set around lunchtime, go with a box and start packing up your dressing room. Hmm. And if I say anything to you, you say, this is why I have a team to protect me and I will listen to my team. And he said, and just, keep saying that and give me about an hour and they'll, they'll agree to the terms. And it happened. And like at three o'clock, they said, okay, please. He, he had me read, you know, which and I signed the contract and then I was back to work and then everyone had to resign their contracts. Okay. Um, because of that. When was that in the, when was that in terms of your, um, I guess the, right in the, the very season, beginning. right in the very beginning. Okay. Right in the very beginning. Um, and what had worked in my favor is that I'd already shot, like, because the way that we were working, we would shoot five episodes a week. Yeah. And in one day, we could maybe shoot scenes from three different episodes. So I'd already basically had a presence in three episodes already. And we were like, I think it was Wednesday um, when they asked me to leave. So it was already too late into filming to not give me yeah. my terms. On, on the agreement it wasn't that big of a deal you know they're just it, it, it was ridiculous and there's also like they had a morality clause and all kinds okay. of yeah stuff like all that. all these all these constraints that kind of you know disney is sort of known to put in for things for exactly. their actors yeah yeah going back to that production cycle that you're in there you know i'd read some interviews with mark zaslov uh one of the writers on it and he basically said that you know he was writing something like four or five scripts a week or something like that, pulling his hair out. Yeah, it was crazy. Uh, we, we would do read-throughs on Monday. We'd get the scripts on Friday. And then because of my theater background and, and having went to like a very uh, strict school of the arts theater program, mm -hmm. 
I would come in memorized or not, I don't believe in memorization, but I would thoroughly work out the character and what I would do and, and you know, like even, uh, you know, how I would behave and interact. And I would get there for the Monday read through and already the script, you know, you know how scripts work where they go through color changes. Like, so let's say uh, it was already at pink or blue, you know, right. which means that there was a, a, a crap load of rewrites. Then we would come in on Tuesday after the, that was done. And then they would be like at uh, yellow or, you know, the, whatever the color and then going back again and then have to put uh, back to white again with the B, you know, so it was like, it was two E. So that's how much rewriting was being done. And in the beginning um, I found it very frustrating because I was like really hard on myself, but the cameraman really helped me a lot. They said, listen, most of my scenes were in the closet anyway. Um, so they said, we don't see here. So we're going to, so they helped me out. They made the script a little bit bigger and they would just put the script all over where we were right, shooting. Yeah. I would just look at different parts of the room and pick up my lines. He said, don't worry about, you know, said soap opera actors do it all the time. And, you know, this is what we don't see. So I learned to hide my script in a lot of places, which in a way freed me up to improv a little bit. Okay. So like when, for instance, when you're in like a, a the, the school hallway or something like that, maybe, maybe not there, but if, if you're in the school hallway and you look down, would there be like sort of your printed script kind of on the wall or something like that? Or, or is that more in like the, the computer scene? Like in the lo inside a locker or sometimes um, li literally just underneath the camera or, you know, to the side or something like that on the wall, I, I would do it. But once I got, um, I don't know, I, I, I've, uh, uh, a friend has to, you know, you have anxiety and if you have a Xanax in your pocket, you become more confident because you don't right. need the Xanax because you know it's there. It was the same for me. Just knowing that I had that script somewhere where I could refer to it um, gave me more confidence to not be so stressed about the lines changing so much, you know. And the also I got a little bit, um, the writers uh, took my feedback a lot about the character. So, you know, a lot of like, when I said, oh, you guys are a bunch of monolithic Neanderthals, you know, that was a, I said, Malcolm went and he said, he called them turd heads. And I was like, I don't know. Oh, think okay. Yeah. Turd heads. It would be a little bit more clever than that. And so there were times where we, uh, they let me at change lines. And also like when I would do some Betty Davis impressions, oh, thank you. You know, they would, they, they would start writing things and they knew that I could do different you know, that I had a big thing on old movies, and so they they would write stuff in for me. Problem, you stupid ginch. Hey, Malcolm, would you leave her alone? She gotta be. Oh, I'm so sorry, Miss Straight A's not perfect. Next thing you know, she'll be slapping babies and robbing banks. I'll pound your head into your feet, you little tumor. What's wrong, Tanka the Kanka? Testosterone overload? When it comes to sort of the, um, I mean, you're reading scripts on Friday, uh, there's revisions happening, you know, you're shooting five episodes in a week, as you said. Mm -hmm. I mean, that sort of frenetic pace, did that add energy to the, uh, the actors and sort of the, the crew and the set? Or did that kind of stress things out? Like, what was it like shooting the, me, the show? I thrive on it. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I talked about this before, and I mean, like, since uh, uh, Troy and I have uh, connected on, on Facebook, I think that um, I recognized quite early that this was something fun and unique, and I was really 
just, I liked Malcolm. I liked playing the character a lot. And, um, and I had fun doing it, and, but, but some didn't, you know. And I think if you look at other people's trajectory, you know, they had other things in their mind and people were doing this in the summer. So, you know, some people would, would have been preferring for doing something else. I mean, there's no lie, Matthew Lawrence struggled with his lines. He was like also doing term papers and the Lawrence family was coming around and, and what have you. Um, so that was more stressful for me, especially like um, the older actors, they were very annoyed by that. I know that he didn't take it as seriously, but on the other hand, he was 15 years old. Right, yeah. 14, you know? Back to production, I was wondering if you could walk me through what the sets were like on Superhuman Samurai Cyber Squad. You know, tell me, what was um, it like walking into that studio area? Well, there was basically, there was the lunchroom, and then there was the hallway. And that was, um, if you're walking from the sound stage, that was predominantly what you saw was the, the, with the stage. And that was really big. And it, I want to say it was also maybe Saved by the Bell, but I, it was Saved by the Bell S. Then there was the lockers. And then the other uh, space was my room. The way that it would work is uh, they would, uh, I, I actually was the one who worked the longest hours for the simple reason that they had to get Matthew in and out early. So like by the, I think it was like three o'clock, he was done, maybe latest four. And then I would do all the closet scenes after that to like about eight or nine o'clock. And so I would basically work 12 hours a day. Okay. Nine to nine. At 3.50 an episode. Yeah. <laughs> That's just so crazy yeah. to think about. Just thinking. I know, about I remember that. when I got my first uh, check, um, I had bought a car cause I had this really shitty Volvo that kept breaking down and right. it was really like fucking up my life so bad. And I broke down on the freeway and it was really embarrassing Yikes. to drive into the studio with this, this jalopy. So I, I sucked it up and bought a new car. And when I got the first check, it was a hundred dollars less than my car payment because in, you know, in taxes, when you make a, a big chunk of money, they take most of it. And then you had the agent, the lawyer, the manager, and uh, business uh, publicists that they all took their bites out of it. And I was like, I literally said, my paycheck is a hundred dollars short of my car payment. Mm. I cried. And, and, but then of course, in the next check check came and then, right, yeah. you know, I was like, yeah, but it's, it was just horrifying to me that I was working my ass off so hard mm -hmm. and I saw so little of my money at that time. But luckily the residuals made up for that too. Yeah. Um, and one thing I, I want to sort of follow up on on the set is that, you know, you spend a lot of time in that sort of bedroom set, um, mm -hmm. sort of at your computer there. But, you know, you're not alone there. You're you're kind of with Tim Curry, kind of maybe spiritually in a way as he's reading out the lines. Um, but I read that, you know, you work closely together, but you never had a chance to meet in person. No, he was doing Congo at the time. I was supposed to meet him and have lunch with him or even just talk to him about the character and stuff like that. because it was supposed to be like, he was supposed to be a mini Tim Curry Kilocon type person. So all I had to go on was just old, you know, uh, uh, Frankfurter from Rocky Horror Picture Show, which I'd seen as a kid with my dad, but he, he took me there by mistake. He had no idea what, what we were in for. <laughs> and uh, that's, that's, that's a, an interesting movie to get taken to by mistake. 
Well, because I think it was it was a time of Greece, and um, my my dad and I had already seen it, and my 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 mom and my other siblings wanted to go and see it, so we we're like, but well, we don't want to see it again. So my dad said, "Oh, look, there's a horror film. Let's go see that. That sounds interesting." And then it was it was debauchery. There was also some like pervy guy sitting next to me, and my dad was just horrified. He's like, "What the hell is going on?" But I enjoyed it. I was like, "This is exciting." <laughs> But he was just like, oh, my God, they're, they're throwing things. And yeah, yeah. he was a bit disturbed by that, that, that experience. But then later I ended up uh, having that as a reference to, because I knew exactly what they were talking about when they were casting. So come up to the lab and see what's on the slab. I see you shiver with anticipation. And when I auditioned for it, I knew that I would get the part. How did you know? It was, I just knew like doing it, there was, uh, it was in something in me said that I would play that part. And it was something about the reading the room. They were just like quiet afterwards, you know? And they were like, and they were like looking, should we have them read it again? And the guy goes, no, 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 it, it was, that was actually, uh, we weren't thinking of it like this, he, guy, he said, but it's an interesting take that you took on it. And that right. was it. And then I walked out and I said, I think I got the part, you know, in my head, you know, and there were no callbacks. I, I got a call literally a day or two later, maybe even the next day and said, I got the part. Mm -hmm. Just to situate um, Superhuman Samurai Cyber Squad kind of in time, you know, mm -hmm. in 1994, when it first came out, right? Um, mm -hmm. There's a huge TV audience for a show called Power Rangers. Superhuman Samurai Cyber Squad was about, debuted about a year after Power Rangers had. And this was kind of Deke's chance to try to do the same sort of thing, uh, but in a different sort of way. Um, I mean, there's probably Power Ranger mania going on back then. Um, but for you with Superhuman Samurai Cyber Squad, you know, what was the general reaction from the public like uh, for you? Like, was there the same level of recognition or? It was, well, for, for me, for my character, well, for me personally, um, I, my life uh, literally changed from, from one day to the next. And if you figure that they were they paid us so poorly, like it didn't change where you got it, you know, you had some bling and you were able to like, hey, you know, you couldn't do that because, you know, I still had to audition and was like out there, you know, busting my hump to, to make the next gig. Mm -hmm. And uh, the show premiered, it was in the fall. So it must have been football or baseball, one of the, but it would come on before baseball. And, um, and so I was out all day auditioning and I came home and it, it was, I, I want to say it was, uh, what is it? September is Labor Day, right? I think yep. it was Labor Day. And I came home and there were literally 10 or 15 kids in my front yard hmm. where I live. And they're like, are you on Superhuman Samurai? No, they said, are you Malcolm? And I said, yeah, I don't know. They, they got it so quick. And then for like a while, like I, I, they were just always at, at the door talking to me. And I was very polite until it got too much. And then we, I ended up moving after that because, you know, the kids just kept coming around and, and it, it, it became a bit heavy. Okay. Um, just because you, 
And, um, and because they were showing it almost every single day and on repeat, like two or three times a day, because it was on the USA, uh, the, the Canadian, uh, it's Canadian network channel. And it was also put everywhere. It was in, it was in here in Germany. It was uh, uh, in Italy. So I was also getting fan mail from Germany as well, like in Italy. Um, so yeah, it, it carried pretty, it, it it was different though because people really responded to the acting and we were doing press junkets by the way which we had to pay for ourselves oh so like to travel to and, and do that yeah so yeah we didn't have to fly anywhere but we we paid we had to pay for our own uh, even sometimes lodging if we stayed somewhere mm. and, and people's reactions to malcolm were very strong i had kids throw up uh when i went to my brother's school so you you're probably close to my brother my youngest brother's age One's uh, 31 and the other one is 34, I think, or 30, but he was, yeah. So I'm 18 and 17 years older than them. And when I went to their school, one of their friends threw up on me because he was so excited. <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a fun fan story, but I guess, I don't know, throw up's not that great. I mean, I, I, I had kids spit on me. Out of um, like, not like, because they didn't like you or they didn't like Malcolm or? They didn't like Malcolm or they were scared of me. So right. the kids spat on me and then I... And I, my, my, uh, Kelly was on the show. She was like, Oh my God, you, 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 I, I, I chased that kid. I'm like, who do you think you are? And, and she said, you sound just like Malcolm. And the kid ran from you. And, and the mom was like very upset with me too. And I was like, your child just spat on me, you know? And, I, and the more indignant I got, the more I sounded like Malcolm. So it was kind of, mm-hmm. I said, you're a terrible parent. <laughs> so I guess so. Fan reaction at the time, popular reaction at the time was kind of a mixture of fans and, you know, but having to pay for your own press junkets. So it was kind of a mixed bag a little bit. I mean, some, I mean, the ones that were local, of course not, but like we did a charity thing that was out of town. Uh, It was basically our choice if we wanted to do it. And if we wanted to do it, then we had to pay for it. And we weren't, no, we weren't super wealthy. I mean, uh, we, we, I remember when we did this thing for Teen Beat Magazine, if you look, my, that skiing outfit I wore was put together by the cast and it was embarrassing. Okay. <laughs> it was really quite embarrassing. I looked ridiculous. Mm. One more production thing I want to go back to is I was reading an article uh, that had an interview with Troy Slatton from 2008. And he kind of went into a bit of detail of like what things were like on the set. And he basically said, I, I wish I can give you some sort of scandal, but I really can't. Um, so seeing... Mm-hmm that things seem to be pretty relaxed on the set, but I was wondering, do you have any good stories that you wanted to share from your time producing the show? I mean, it was pretty relaxed. I mean, um, I, I would say just because of the, the drama I had with the contract, there was tension for me just because I've made drama, but it wasn't really drama. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I had a, the sh- a dress room next to Troy, so I knew that he was complaining about being on the show. Oh, okay. The walls were pretty thin. Um, but yeah, it was pretty drama free. I mean, we all were there doing our job. Actually, we all got along. I mean, Diana, um, I used to hang out with her. Kevin, we used to hang out, but we all like me, uh, Robin, Mary, Kevin, um, Diana, Kelly and I, we, 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 uh, stayed friends for a long time. Also, um, uh, Jamie, she studied with my, my acting coach who was, uh, who I was sharing a house with at the time. So, we actually all clicked and I even at one point introduced Kelly to a friend of mine that she was dating at one point. So mm-hmm. even after the show, we, we stayed in contact for a long time. It was not until I moved back to New York that it changed. 
it's it's good to hear that things are kind of harmonious because I'd read some articles about um can't remember his name now, but the uh, the guy who played the Blue Ranger on oh, yeah. from Power Rangers and his experiences on set there being excessively negative, specifically because he's gay and they were trying to basically out him the entire time and the controversies around that. So, I mean, to hear about a harmonious set is... Yeah, good. I mean, I, I was kind of um, a little bit protected from that, uh, I think because of the circumstances uh, of which we were shooting and it was a different organization i mean it was disney for god's sakes you know i don't think and the other thing that uh, from uh, from that uh, thing as i had already been i had done some other stuff for disney before i was i was actually the actor reference for pocahontas and they wouldn't allow me to do pocahontas and cyber squad at the same time which i wanted to do which actually the actor reference was paying me a shitload of more money um, mm -hmm. It was very well paid, and and who ended up replacing me? Oh God, I, I'm, I'm having a senior moment today. Uh, uh, Batman, um, uh, Christian Bale. Yeah, yeah. So he ended up playing Thomas, the the the, the role that I was uh, uh, doing the actor reference for. And I don't think I, I mean maybe looking back, maybe we had some striking resemblance, but. I, I have uh, all the drawings that they would send out to us and the tapes that we would have to act to. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think that uh, that Thomas is a fusion of, of the two of us. And uh, I mean, speaking of Pocahontas is kind of a, uh, a tortured segue here to talk a bit about representation because, you know, you're Native American and I, I mean, want to... I was playing an Irish character. I'm playing an Irish character. <laughs> Um, but I want to talk about, you know, representation on TV and, you know, being a Native American actor back then. I mean, we had talked a bit a bit before about the constraints that you're under, um, the term, you know, used like exotic as your kind of look and that being used for you. Um, I mean, just what was it like back in the 90s, you know, working back then and trying to get roles? I think looking back now, it had more, well, I mean, I, I definitely went through like this period where things slowed down for me as an actor, just because when you're not, as I said, not auditioning all the time, doing everything you possibly can from music videos to commercials and, and what have you. Mm -hmm. I do remember uh, one of the things that happened is I, I had booked a McDonald's commercial and, um, and it was for the Mexican market and they cast me because I was so light skinned and this is the irony is that they thought that I, you know, because of my agent, I was French Canadian and I could speak a little bit of Spanish, you know, cause my grandmother, uh, my, on my, the reservation speaks Spanish. Mm -hmm. And so I wasn't allowed to even really, even then playing in a Mexican market commercial say that I was a minority. Right. They hired me because I was very light skin and then my hair was too black. So they had me, they, uh, the day before had lightened my hair and then my agent said keep it and then then I was now spending like 150 bucks uh, a month to have my hair look like it was naturally light brown and so then cut to when I was like this is so ridiculous and I stopped dyeing my hair people thought had known me for such a long time that I was dyeing my hair black and was wondering why mm -hmm. I was doing that but I said this is actually my natural hair color and uh, and it was years later um, when I was back in New York and actually my friend and I uh, just recently talked about this uh, experience that she um, 
she was calling me because she had moved to Taos, New Mexico, and she was having a tough time dealing with the native culture there. And I said, you know, I just came from seeing the canary effect and I was really emotional and raw about that. And I said, you know, uh, and she's Jewish. And I said, you know, I just want you to understand that I, it's hard for me to listen to this because I've heard this so many times. I pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I said, my mother's experience and having to, been in a gang and, and being in a woman's prison at a very young age. Um, if you look at my grandmother, that she was in a boarding school and I said, so as a Jewish person, imagine that the ghetto in Warsaw just stayed and they just put more Jews in there. And the first thing they did is take away your language, take away your culture, take away your identity. And then what they pumped it full of this hole that is left inside your soul, inside your body, inside your heart and mind is filled with drugs, alcohol, sex, sexual abuse, physical abuse, and mental and emotional abuse. And imagine what that does generation after generation. And that when you go out, I'm getting really, when you go out, you don't see yourself. You don't see yourself represented on television, mm -hmm. except for being something bad and being something awful. And then here you, here I am working all the time. And I, 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 I don't remember what I talked about, but I said, I felt like I wasn't representing my people at all. Like I wasn't talking about it. I wasn't allowed to talk about it. I, I, I had said that I missed the opportunity to be, an example okay you know i, I mean, did like, one fundraiser with where i kind of came out as indigenous oh, i forgot about this yeah it was me and kelly went to this uh this fundraiser i still have this shirt and i leaned and I, I, he was so upset with me and i after i did the the charity event i i i introduced this chief and then afterwards i told him um that I was also Native American and mm -hmm. I, that I was a Tachioka nation, central California. And he was so angry. He said, you know, that you could have introduced me with that. There are people here that would have been so proud to know that one of their people was on a popular kid show. There's so many young people out there that could have looked up to you and you just chickened out. Right. And that really, really, like I was so upset by that. Even thinking about it now, I was very upset about it. I had the opportunity and I didn't speak up. Yeah. I mean, if you had wanted to speak up though, within that, you know, I mean, things aren't that much better in 2020 versus the 1990s in terms of indigenous representation on TV and, and understanding of the culture and, and, and what indigenous people have, you know, been through. But if you had wanted to infuse more of your personal identity in the character, what do you think the reaction would have been like? I, I'm, I'm not sure if they would have been. Well, first of all, it, I mean, it wouldn't have really made a difference other than just being represented, but it certainly would have maybe made a difference in future roles for me, you know, mm -hmm. um, that I wouldn't have maybe gotten certain auditions, just they would start to typecast me as more, uh, more ethnic than I, I am. And, and I mean, if you think about my like life experience, I grew up in the South, you know, I, I was, you know, had a slight little twang that I got rid of. And so my cultural identity is very, you know, it's not at all indigenous. You know, my mom made sure that we were raised, you know, she always said, be smarter than a white person, be more educated, you know, be more successful. Uh, and, you know, whenever you get pulled over, just be polite. Hmm. And just listen to what you're being told and mm -hmm. don't don't bite and don't get angry just be quiet 
from the perspective of 2020 and, and mm-hmm. um, I guess this being probably not the best year in the world, um, but there are some good uh, movies that are coming out. There's uh, Blood Quantum, which I can think of. There's a new show called Trickster, which is on CBC, which is the Canadian Broadcasting Company in, in Canada, which is based off of uh, Indigenous book series. Um, mm-hmm. We had just, I had just watched Inconvenient Indian, which is a new uh, documentary by a uh, actress and director named Michelle Latimer. I mean, uh, at least from an, an outsider's perspective, it seems like there's more indigenous representation now in terms of documentary and TV and movies. Um, but I mean, what's your perspective on you know the indigenous story being represented on television? Is it being done more fairly, fairly now, or? Or, or what? Well, I mean, it's funny because my brother and I, uh, my brother Jeffrey, uh, he's sending me a lot of material. Um, I, I say I had to come all the way to Germany to feel, I never f- felt more native by uh, them being here in Germany than I did being in the United States. Mm. Um, I mean, it's to the point where it's almost fetishized here because they have this Winnetou character that by Carl May that they he never once spent time in, in with Indians or native Americans back in the twenties. And he was also a con artist. So he just invented this, this fantasy character. In fact, Hitler's, uh, Jungen, um, uh, the, 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 uh, the youth Nazis, uh, and also the soldiers had, the, I think 13 principles of Winnetou that they went out with, you know, uh, and there's a saying, uh, that uh, uh, Indians feel no pain. So you, that's why you never see them cry. Right. And um, so, but when once people find out that I'm indigenous, they completely, you know, I'm not American, like American anymore. I'm Native American. And they're like, so, I mean, uh, my uh, boyfriend had a friend who's a very like stoic German ballet dancer and we met. And then when she found out he was going to the bathroom and she go, he goes, oh, geez, Native American. I know you love Native Americans. And she's very like stoic and tough. And when he came back from the bathroom, she was hugging me. And he goes, what is going on? And she goes, I just wanted to be hugged by a Native American. He goes, oh my God, what happened to my friend? And it was nice. But, you know, at the same time, they have issues here too on how they, they appropriate the culture in these like these uh, Western festivals that they do. Um, but I think in terms of answering your question, I'm happy to like uh, see more and more representation and also young people using media to um, to get their voice out there. There's a, a, a two uh, rap bands that my brothers introduced me to, which... Um, tribe Called Red, to... maybe being one of them. Was that? A Tribe Called Red. That might be one, but actually I, I, it, it's, 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 uh, I have it here. So he's been like introducing me to uh, a lot of this stuff and also what uh, the documentaries and he's sending me books and I'm trying to catch uh, up as, uh, on everything because I, I see there's so much happening right now. Mm-hmm. So I think any movement in this area is better than no movement. Um, and I'm actually interested in the trickster one because I was working on um, a, a series idea which was called uh, uh, it's actually Berlin sucks, which was based on a trickster character um, in native culture that, you know, they go in and they change the, they change the culture for good or bad. They're neither good or, or evil. So it's kind of like having a, an anti-hero kind of thing, you know, where their role is necessary. So they, if someone's journey is supposed to 
that they, their life ends and they send them on that path. Or if, if you need to make change, then you cause a revolution. Right. And uh, so I'm, I'm curious about this, but I want to see more. And I, I, I mean, uh, I want, I, I want us to get more organized, you know? Mm-hmm. So going sort of into the final stretch of things here and sort of looking back on your time uh, on the show, um, have you ever gone back recently to watch episodes of yourself? And if you have, what, what do you think of your, uh, your performance as Malcolm Frank? Uh, I do, I do watch it from time to time because fans, fans will post stuff, but I mean, my mm-hmm. favorite episode was, will always be, what are you doing? Just because I got to do some theater type acting in there. And what will you be performing, Mr. Frank? Selections from the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Water, water everywhere, and all the boards did shrink. Water, water everywhere, nor any drop to drink. Malcolm, what was that? The Mariner dying of thirst. And the mask? Terminal sunburn. I'm proud of it. Uh, and, and people are surprised when they see like, oh, wow, you really, uh, it, it was not like Power Rangers where the, I, I don't feel the acting was so terrible and we really all took it serious and there were some good actors in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm surprised at how funny I am. I, I actually make myself laugh. Like I'm watching, I'm like, oh my God, this is, but I knew that uh, there were times and I've had this in other times where audition for like men behaving badly and I was supposed to play a gang member and because of my, my in my mind at that time i always put everything for serious like and the more right, serious yeah. i am the funnier it is so there were certain things that i did uh, you know uh with malcolm that i was really really committed to it and and i know like diana and 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 kevin they would just especially kelly sometimes she would really crack up uh at stuff that i would do and I'm like, what's so funny, guys? Come on. You know, and I would get a little bit annoyed with them. But now looking back, I actually laugh at myself. Because I, I just, they let me do whatever I wanted. And I liked that freedom. And then they also, they also was pushing me. So you see, as the season went, seasons went on, I got more and more over the top. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing, too, is that, you know, we're in this moment right now with COVID-19, coronavirus and everything, um, where it seems that people are searching for a lot of comfort from the past. Uh, people are looking at, you know, this, this feeling of nostalgia for how things once were. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on sort of looking back to those times uh, where, you know, you're running around auditioning for roles, you had your sort of Volvo jalopy. Do you feel any nostalgia for the time when you were, you know, doing the show? Not for, I mean, I really, uh, I have to say of all my experiences, it was actually one of my fondest memories that I had so much, uh, fun doing it, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, I, I, I wouldn't, I mean, I, yeah, I would say yes, but I mean, I would like, I would like to revisit the character again someday, you know, uh, there's some fan fiction that's been written and I've worked on a script uh, which was kind of built around what people thought Malcolm would be like today. And it's actually, actually interesting because the, the thing that you had written, a lot of people, a lot of the fans, and I've noticed and, uh, I'm getting more likes uh, for the Cyber Squad page and it's, it's growing. 
Um, and I only uh, knew, I discovered that just because I was here in Germany and and I wanted it. I don't know. I was just kind of searching it and I found uh, that there seemed to be several pages dedicated to Cyber Squad that I didn't know about. And so then I I started to interact uh, with the you know the different groups out there. And um, but um, yeah, so I didn't. Yeah, I, of course you get nostalgic, and I and and also the way the show ended was really kind of shitty too, because we were actually planning to go back on. I had stuff in the closet. I really kind of dressed the closet to feel like home. So like uh, Kevin and me and another friend, we went on a, a road trip to Mexico for one of our breaks, and so we brought stuff back, and so we put things in the closet that you know that was from that trip. Just kind of, I mean, now what they call them, what uh, Easter eggs or whatever they call okay, them. Okay, yeah, yeah. We did funny things like we we had we had done stuff like that, but now, I mean, the the ring that I was wearing, they said, oh, we need to keep the stuff for continuity, and we were planning to come back, and and we had already done the alternate universe uh, episode, which kind of set up the fact that maybe Malcolm would go good, and then the, yeah. also the I think it was the Christmas episode where he figures out Kilocon is really not a good person. And so there was this, and we didn't shoot in order, so we didn't know when that, how it would air. You know, so then there was, the, I always felt like this was unfinished business. And I think that, that there would, there is, or could be interest with all this revival now with Gridman and in and, um, Japan that's happening that uh, yeah there could be something yeah and, and just as a, a final question so i mean yeah so some background so i wrote an article a long time ago about malcolm frank being you know tv's youngest hacker and talking about how you know he could have he could do so much with his talents in computers mm -hmm. and you know thinking about it now someone like malcolm could have gone on to i don't know uh form something like paypal or something like that and be a multi-billionaire yeah. with his skills um, but what's your interpretation of, of how Malcolm is doing? You, you've talked about some scripts that you're working on. So what would he be doing? Basically, um, we, I mean, just reading the fan fiction. So somehow uh, they, because if you look at some of the fans that have a really strong, like, goth, uh, there's also the, the ones that wear the heavy makeup. Mm -hmm. And so basically, like, Malcolm actually becomes like an anti-bullying advocate, you know, because he, in my mind, he does do something wrong. He does get arrested. And, he, and the script is called uh, the, Black, uh, the Black Hatter. So he goes from bad to good, you know? And in that kind of episode where he gets into cyberspace and there's part of him that's still stuck there. But he turns his life around and he, and he, he kind of becomes like a cross between Ashton Kutcher and, uh, and um, uh, you know, and Elon Musk and Marilyn Manson. So like he's a digital DJ rock star kind of thing. He's traveling the world, he's buying things, but there's a, then he disappears. Oh, okay. And then the virus is released. And so you realize that uh, he's, there's this battle that goes on within himself between his good self and his bad self. And so the Kilocon is actually him. And so, uh, and so he, he, he actually is, releases, this series of events and it's about water. Um, and so he, he takes control of the world's water supply because he knows that's the last resource. And he's the actual, the good Malcolm uh, brings Cyber Squad back together again, but a new team. Like, so there's all these incidents that happen. A guy gets released from prison 
a, uh, a clerk who uh, does billing, you know, is a computer programmer. She gets led into like, you know, she's an uh, agoraphobic, but she is pushed out of her home by a series of uh, events. And so it's all these, uh, this, this kid uh, whose father is the, the CEO of a Nestle type company gets kidnapped and it's like, but they all get brought together and then they realize that they have to stop this virus. That, you know, so that, that's been based on fan fiction. So they all see that Malcolm actually becomes the cool one. And then the original cyber squad, you know, kind of just fades into the distance, you know, the, the, the original character is kind of overweight and, you know, they're all like looking up right, to, yeah. to him kind of regretful that they were so mean to him. And I always thought that they were mean to him. And yeah, that's something we didn't really address earlier. And I, I, I'm going to be mindful of your time, but you know, Malcolm Frank is like, to me now how I was also in high school. <laughs> like, I think it's, it's easy as someone who is, you know, quiet, you know, artistic, thoughtful, whatever, like being recognized in high school as the quiet one and then being recognized as a target for bullying is something yeah. that's, you know, it, it's, it's very easy. It just happens in high school. Like the quiet people just tend to get bullied. And Malcolm in the show does get bullied by the other characters. I was thinking of one episode, which I actually have on the uh, VHS tapes here, as a, his master's voice, where um, Sydney actually takes a little voice clip from Malcolm of uh, I think it was about something like you were redrawing Custer's last stand with bazookas or something like that. Um, but essentially, they bully him. <laughs> they yeah. they take his voice, they transform it, and then he seeks revenge because he's been bullied. So yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, um, I, I it's funny because uh, I, I, maybe you can relate to this. For me in high school, I was bullied a lot. I was very tiny and. Um, and I was doing ballet and I was doing all these things. So I was, you know, picked on. And, and then you look at that. Uh, I mean, I always said my childhood was like uh, a Native American Almodovar film that took place in the deep south. So we had drag queens as babysitters. We were the mm -hmm. weird family. My mom owned a bar. Uh, you know, it was like we were like a, the carnival family. I got bullied a lot by the football players. Back, you know, it is like if you're in theater, they're doing practice after school when you're doing your theater practice you yeah. know so that means that you have certain periods with the same people who torture you and i used to get pushed into lockers punched in the stomach and i was i was kind of to myself but i also and i didn't know this until i went to my high school reunion and uh and i and which is very like looking back it was very like a very malcolm thing to say mm -hmm. but i used to say you can do whatever you want to me. You will mean nothing to me when I leave here. Mm. And I used to say all kinds of uh, things like this to them. And, and, and I think that's partly why I liked Malcolm so much because he did get to say those things. He did stand up for himself. He did create those viruses, a way of dealing with it, like you said in the article. And, 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 and that's probably why I became an actor is because I got to play other people um, as a way of dealing with it. And that's probably why I wanted to prove to all these people that said I couldn't do it, that, you know, by my 25th birthday, I had achieved these things. And, and when I went, I went to two, two reunions, they said, oh, we, we wanted to hang out with you, but you were just so focused on, you know, I worked, you know, I worked at my mom's bar. I was putting myself through school. 
And I just wanted to get out of there. And I made it very clear that none of those people would matter to me. They could do anything they want to be short of killing me. And it would not affect me. Hmm. And I don't think today's climate with social media and what have you, it's much harder to hold your head up high when there's, when there's such viciousness. I mean, it's one thing to be called a faggot and punched and pushed around. Um, but it's another thing to have something taking a picture of you or put in some kind of compromised position. Yeah. And then it's, it's shot out for millions of people to see. Yeah. So I would like, I would like to see something of a revival of the show for sure. Um, and people have asked about that. And I think after Corona, it'd be nice to maybe get the cast that's still here because Lucky passed away. Uh, Diana's not with us anymore. And the principal's not with us anymore. All three died of cancer. Hmm. You know? And it'd be nice to just get everyone together again, you know, even if it's just to do some uh, Comic-Con or something like that. I'm yeah. sure that there's uh, interest out there. I mean, there's definitely interest out there. I'd love to see that for, for one. Yeah, it would be fun. <laughs> to <laughs> see us all uh, a bit older and wiser. I mean, I'm 51 now. So uh, they're, they're got to be, I think, 45, some yeah. of them. Well, to I mean, be fair, you're, you're 51, but you look about 31, I'd say. So, <laughs> Yeah, I'm, uh, it's the Native American genes and uh, keeping out of the sun actually probably worked to my benefit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, gee, this has been such a great talk. I want to thank you so much for your time. And uh, I appreciate it as well. Take care. Take it easy. Thanks for listening to the show. If you enjoyed this episode, share with a friend over the social media airwaves and be sure to subscribe. And stay tuned for our next episode.